And that's the cruel reason why I left old Skibbereen. Hello everyone, my name is Terry Carney and I am the manager and curator at Skibbereen Heritage Centre. We welcome thousands of visitors every year to our exhibition about the Great Famine in Skibbereen. And we also provide a genealogy service for the greater West Cork area. We are so, so fortunate to have a wonderful in-house local genealogist, Margaret Murphy, who is, I like to say, the White Witch of genealogy. I've watched Margaret work her magic in helping people to find their West Cork ancestry now for over 20 years. And this service has meant so much to the tens of thousands of people from all over the world who now call West Cork their home, thanks to Margaret's work. Margaret meets people by appointment in the centre and also carries out commissioned fee-paying research online via our website www.skibheritage.com. But she simply does not have the time to answer the huge volume of general genealogy queries that come in every year. So we came up with the idea of doing a series of podcasts so that Margaret can give listeners information on how to start such family history research. And we hope that it will help you. And if it does, please spread the word and tell others about it too. Where to start? In this first episode, we start at the very beginning. Margaret chats to me about how to research my own West Cork ancestry, because I am, I freely admit, at the back of the genealogy class. So Margaret, thank you so much for explaining this labyrinth of family history to the dunce of the genealogy class here. I am the Amadon of this particular class. But where to start? How do you start this? Do you speak to people that know something? Do you try and get to your grandparents? Where is the best place to start this kind of research? Yeah, so initially anybody that I would suggest that anybody embarking on looking into their family ancestry would be to speak to the most senior members of their family, grandparents, great aunts, great uncles, anybody at all, and just collect as much data as you can, particularly the names, parishes of where they might be from, and any information about immigration in family lines and so forth. But collecting the data is one thing, but writing it down and recording it is essential because you may not get to doing the search when you speak to that individual. So just write down everything. Perfect. I know that that happened to me. I left it too late and everybody was gone and I had nobody to ask. So, yes, very, very important. And with that much information, where does that get you to? Would it get you to the census records at that stage? It would. So anybody, again, initially with all of the details that you've written down or collected on your family history, the 1901 and 1911 census is the best place to start because what it allows you to do is go back into the 1800s, collect information, ages, names and so forth about extended family lines and also bringing the family forward, the younger generations forward into the 1900s. So it's a threshold for me from the 1800s to 1900s. And of course, the earlier records, the censuses in Ireland were carried out from 1821, but all of the ones for various reasons before 1901 were destroyed or were lost. Correct. That's very unfortunate. The earlier censuses from 1821 to 1851 were destroyed by order of the British government for shortage of paper during the First World War. And then the second half of the 1800s, British government ordered the 61 and 71 censuses to be destroyed because they had collected the statistical information from them. But 
the effects of the civil war and the war of independence and the burning of the public records office and so forth also led to the destruction of the census records. So the earliest is 1901, then there's 1911 and of course the later ones are not yet released for for the south of Ireland. 1921 wasn't collected due to the wars of independence and again the civil war. So 1926, so we're just a couple of years short of receiving the 1926 census. Brilliant. And of course, it's very easy to go off on a tangent with this and build a house of cards if you don't build a good foundation. So the census is good for that, isn't it? That gives you a firm foundation. How best to search it? Do you search it under a name, under a place? How, how do you best do you do that? Well, the database will allow you search on either way. It will allow you search by district or by name. Now, the 1901 and 1911 census is available freely on the National Archives website, www.nationalarchives.ie. And we'll put all of those up on the website. Yeah. So again, what I would say to anybody embarking on a search is search first by name, but sometimes the name could be incorrectly spelled. Our district here in Skibbereen, Driscoll, Donovan, McCarthy's, they're all very, very popular and common surnames. So you really, really have to know the area where the individual is from. Even if you could break it down to parish, albeit that the parish is not mentioned on the census records when you're doing a search, you have to search under the DED, which is the District Electoral Division. Go on our website, www.skibheritage.com. There's a list of town lands and that gives you the DEDs for this area. But you can you can do it by name and by town land or by name and by county and just scroll through the whole lot. But ideally, if you have a lot of information collected, the name, the town land and the district, if you could break those down, then it makes your search a lot easier. Brilliant one. So we're going to use my family as an example, listeners, because um, I did mention that I'm the genealogy dunce of the class. So Margaret has looked up my family. I know that my grandfather's name was Michael Carney. So you're searching now for Michael Carney in Cork. And you found the family pretty much straight away. There they are. Now, that's actually quite an easy one because Kearney is an unusual name in this area. But how do you handle the O'Sullivan, Sullivans, Mac and all of these different names? It can be difficult at times. You have to possibly search under Sullivan first omit the O and the apostrophe. If you're not getting any results in under in, under that way, put in the O and the apostrophe or sometimes just the O space Sullivan. So it can be cumbersome to search family surname with the prefix before it, but stay with it because the intention of the census is that everybody was recorded. So they are in there. So you would start with the Sullivan, then O Sullivan, then O apostrophe Sullivan, and with the same with the Max, start with the MC, and then you could just start without the Max and so on. We are doing a little cheat here because Kearney is an unusual name. So we're now looking at the original form of my grandfather's family. So what does that form tell us, Margaret? That's my grandfather, Michael Kearney. So what we have is we've located Michael Kearney in the townland of Lislehurig. So what you have here now is you have turn sheet, listing Michael, but also his mother. So his mother is named as head of the household. Then Michael, aged 31 years of age. And then there's Catherine Long, niece, and she's aged 13. So again, this census return. So it gives you an additional information that there was an extended family line carrying the this, this surname Long. If you hadn't known that, then that's another avenue you can explore. Mm. And of course, in this era, 
when they had lots and lots of children, quite often family members would be in other houses overnighting or with grandparents or with cousins or with aunts or whatever. So if they're not found in the house, don't panic. They're probably in a in a neighbouring family house. And again, adopt the attitude that if they were alive in 1901, in March 31st, 1901, or again in the 1st of April 1911, they should be recorded somewhere in the census. And of course, it tells you the occupation. It tells you the marital status, tells you where born and it tells you the language is spoken. Do you find anybody unusual when you're doing these? Yeah, so generally a census return gives provides an awful lot of very interesting information socially about what was happening in Ireland at the time. But sometimes I've come across where I've been carrying out a family search for a client and I've seen an entry where a niece or a nephew or a grandchild has returned from America. So they were born in America, so that's very interesting. And again, it adds to your fam- your search, knowing now that an extended version of that family are in the US. Fantastic. And of course, I'm, the signature is on the form. I remember, listeners, you won't know this, but way we were ahead of the pack way back in the early 2000s, before these census records were available online. We got the microfiche from the National Archives. We printed them all out. We bound them and we created a database for this area. So we had bound volumes with all the various townlands and the names. So a lot of local people and a lot of people from around the world came in looking at them. And I so remember them looking at the page and touching the signature of their ancestor. And I think I remember you saying we're unique in that, that we have the original Correct. form. So the Irish census is the only one that actually has the family return completed in the US and in the UK and various other districts. They collected the information on a census return, but they gathered all of that data and the, enumer- the enumerators page collected on the enumerators page and they destroyed the family return. So it's very, very unique. And like, as you said, if your family member or the family member at that time signed it, then you've got a signature from the past. Yes, of course. You know? And I love, of course, as well, it tells you the language is spoken. And this is really, really, really fascinating to see. Again, I remember them from the printed ones. You can see the older generation, first language, Irish, the next generation, Irish and English, and then the children down as English only. So there was almost a generation where they weren't actually speaking to each other. That tells you a lot as well, doesn't it? It does. And like, just as you mentioned there about the languages, usually anybody born pre-famine years tended to speak Irish and anybody born from the famine down, but particularly from about maybe the 1870s down, anybody of 30 years, or they're only speaking English. So a house is bilingual and the communication between families, but the younger generations in uh, returned on the census return usually tended to only speak English. So you can see the death of a language there in front of us. Exactly. And of course, the descriptions there, they're very, very interesting. Anybody who was going to school was called a scholar. Servant was used a lot, farm servant, domestic servant, not in a derogatory term. That was very commonly used. So there was farmers and so on. Any others that you've come across, Margaret? Like again, very, very interesting ones about disability. So there's what there was very crude terms used like deaf and dumb, idiot, lunatic, and these people might just have a stammer. But that must be very upsetting for people who come into you and see their ancestor referred to in this way. Exactly. They'd be taken aback and it would sadden them to think that this reference would be made against an individual that probably didn't receive any medical intervention. 
you yes. know. And I remember as well, um, back in the day when we had the printouts, I actually wrote an article about this for the local journal because I, I got such a kick out of them. You can almost tell the personality of the people through some of the descriptions they give given themselves as well. I remember one particularly, was an elderly gentleman living on his own and his occupation, they'd asked him what his occupation was and he gave his occupation as walking around. I loved it. I mean, that just yes. said so much about that man. Yeah. And then there was another that immediately comes to mind as well. It was a mother-in-law in the house. So the head of the household was the man, then his wife, and then all the list of the children. And generally it's all in the same writing. But on this particular form, whoever had filled out the main form, be it the man or the woman, it was in one writing. And then down at the bottom, the grandmother or the, the mother-in-law was had written her own name in. So obviously she'd filled in her own bit of the form, even though it was the head of the household was supposed to fill it in. And then the description, her occupation was minding myself. Mm, I said good. that said says, a lot about, a lot about what was going on <laughs> in the house. So yes, some of them are very, very, very interesting. So that's 1901. Yeah. And just to mention just about the other columns on the, the census, the ages. So age, the age of each individual on a census return, be it 1901 or 1911, they're never accurate. Very, very, very rarely are they accurate. They're, they're always just in and about two to three, maybe four or five years in inaccuracy of an age of an individual. So accept that it is the same family, it is the correct individual, but the ages are never on parity with a baptismal date or a birth record date. And we came across that now, actually, because if you look at my one for 1911, there's a big jump in age for my great-grandmother. She is 70 in 1901, and she goes up to 85 in 1911. Now, I very unkindly put that into the pension coming in in 1908 and her trying to be eligible for that, but you're saying it, it could be just that she simply didn't know her age. Sometimes you will see a massive disparity between the ages of an individual listed in the 1901 census to the 1911 census. We, we can say it, we have no proof, but the old, the old age pension act was introduced in 1908. So was it a case of that people were, means were very, very low and were they seeking assistance here? And at that time, most of the people that would be, who could apply for this the old age pension when it came in in 1908 they were born pre-civil registration so all they had was a baptismal record to prove their age we'll, we'll be very nice and say my great-grandmother was not fooling the system she just didn't know her age but I, I, I get a kick out of that so in the 1911 now my family have actually moved my grandfather was a carrier he had a farm but he was also a carrier he, he had a dray horse and so on and he followed the road to Lep. So by 1911, he's married and there he is with his new family. So this is a different looking form, Margaret. There's a lot of extra information on this, isn't there? The 1911 census return just lists a little bit more information on it. So it asks the lady of the house if she's married, how many years she's married, how many children born to her and how many still living. So again, that's great because you can collect data and maybe some of your grandparents, siblings may have just, you know, died child infancy or the death rates of child infancy at the time was quite high. So again, you can learn a lot from that. Uh, just in the case of your Kearney family, so we located them in the townland of Lisle, Oregon, 1901, and now they're listed in Cullahan, West in, in Lep. You see that the addition, Michael is married in 1905 and lists some of his children. So you're collecting a lot of data between the two census returns. And my grandfather, oh no, my father is now there. Oh gosh, there's someone at the end, Mark. Boylan, I don't know who that is, Margaret. Okay, now, so this Mark Boylan is a farm servant and he's from County Monaghan. That's mm. very, very strange to have somebody 
living in the Lep area from County Monaghan at this time, I would relate that to the possibility that he was one of the schoolboys from the industrial school in Baltimore. We, I am aware that, and from searching other census forms in the locality, that a lot of people in the Lep area, but the general Skibbereen greater area, took in those boys during the summer months, A, to help them on the farm, but also to give them some um, nurturing and also some idea of family life because they were in- institutionalised from a very young age. Okay, and, and the industrial schools, for the listeners, industrial schools were a blight on our history in Ireland. They were schools, so-called, where young boys primarily were put in, could have been misbehaving, they could have been orphaned, they could have whatever. Generally, they were not treated that well. I know that my mother had a boy from the Baltimore Industrial School on the farm that was there before I was born. Um, But I do know he came back regularly to visit her, so I assume she must have treated him well. So I sincerely hope my grandfather treated that boy well as well. What age is he there? 18, out working. So, yeah. And very interesting as well about telling you how many children died, because I know if when you go to look at old graveyards, we think the exception now is when a child predeceases an adult. In those days, it was just common that you lost several children. Quite common, and in some family um, group, groupings, they could have lost anything up to three to four children. Mm. Poor women, poor women. Okay, so that is the form. So that's the form A. That's the household return that the people themselves filled in. But there are other fascinating forms as well. There's form B1 and B2. I loved these forms. So B1, Margaret, what does that tell us? B1 tells us it lists, so it lists all the family families residing in the particular townland. But it tells you, it gives you a classification of the type of structure of the house. It lists the quality of the walls, the roof, and how many windows. So again, it gives you an idea of the means of your family at that particular time. It lists them into a classification, second, first, second, third, and sometimes fourth. Yeah, yeah. and in fourth class houses, listeners, these are early classifications. So first class house would have been the gentry, second, a good farmhouse, third, a lesser good farmhouse, and fourth would have been the poorest of the poor. And in this area, almost half the population lived in these fourth class houses prior to the Great Famine. And they were the people that were wiped out. I remember I did one particular study on one particular parish and 70% of the fourth class houses were wiped out. These were one-roomed houses, sometimes made of mud or earth or sod built, single door into the house. And there are still some of them left in the 1901, but the majority of the houses have gone to third, second and the gentry first class houses. Yeah, just carrying out um, research in my own village of Drina um, in 1901. I was just looking at all the houses and the listings through the village. And in 1901, there was a particular house listed with a thatched roof. But by 1911, that house is, or the thatched roof, it must have been removed and a slate roof put on it because it's it, it's not mentioned in the 1911 census. So again, socially, there was something going on there. Yeah, yeah. And also the form B1, the one that shows everybody occupying the town land. So they have numbers on the side, but they're arbitrary numbers. So essentially the enumerator walked through the town land. But you can figure out, like if the house no longer exists, you can almost figure out the location. Because if you find one house that, for example, a first class house, you can go up and down in that. And there's also a supporting document that you can use with this. It's the 25 inch Ordnance Survey map, which you can get online. Again, we'll be talking about this in a later episode. So you can bring that up from this area dates to around 1902. So if you bring up that map and you bring up the form B1, 
and you use a bit of detective work, you can figure out where these last houses are. And you can even, even see that between 1901 and 1911. Um, so it's, it's very, very interesting. And this B1 also tells you the ownership of the property, Margaret, doesn't it? So it could it be does. just an occupier. Exactly. So it lists the family residing in the townland, but also there's another column listing the occupier or the owner, the leaseholder of, of that land. And in this case, Terry, for Cullan West, Michael Carney is residing in the townland, but he's also the owner of that property. But he's listed again further down and it's John Bryan, William Cook and a Johanna Hurley are leasing from Michael Carney. Mm. You know? So yeah, there was a little clan, a little settlement on the land he bought. So clearly these were the people that were living in that. So we'll again, we'll talk about how people lived. It's very, very interesting in these little settlements later. Now, but my favourite form of all, I have to say, is the form B2. That actually gives you almost a picture of the farmyard, doesn't it, Margaret? It tells you all the outhouses and buildings. So it gives you a really good sense of what the farmyard could have looked like. Exactly. Again, this form, for whatever number you're listed on the form B1, you can just cross-reference to see how many outhouses or buildings or farm buildings that was associated to your dwelling house. And it, it, it gives a list. So again, it gives you an understanding of where your family were and their means at that particular time. And they're fascinating. Cow house, pig house, stables, dairy, piggery, fowl house, boiling house, it re turf house. It really gives you a sense of what the whole place looked like. I, I always find that so, so interesting. If I could just mention one more thing about the 1901 and 1911 census or the difference between the two is that with the advent of changes in land ownership, the acts that were coming in from British Parliament at the time is with the congested district boards and Cork County Council being, being formed. Small farmers could now acquire a labourer's cottage, the, the Bahans, the one, one chimney small cottages. So you can see the changes in the, the quality of structure of the house they were living in in 1901 as opposed to 1911. Farming families were investing in new properties. My great-grandfather had only one brother, which was unusual out of nine, that emigrated to the US. He became a police officer in, in Buffalo, New York. But he came home once back to Ireland in the 1920s. And he came with a probably financial support to his brother who had stayed on the farm because he was building a new house. It had finished and he wanted to come home and see the new build. And essentially what people did is they moved across the yard. So the old dwelling house would become an outhouse and the new family building, which are now still very much in existence today, was built. But it was probably one of the proudest days of his life to see that they had built themselves a new house for generations to come. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. lovely to see the progression. Any other pitfalls, Margaret? Oh, again, with, with either the 1901 or 1911 census, if an individual was part of an institution, if depending on their occupation, RIC officers or, or constables, RIC constables, the officer was always, or the sergeant was always named, given his full name on a return. But the RIC constables who were in the barracks at the time were only initialed. Individuals in workhouses were only initialed. But the staff of the workhouses were given, they, they, their full names were given. Industrial schools, again, initials. Possibly the county of where they came from might have been named. Lighthouse keepers, very, all, all of the religious institutions, convents and so forth, all only initialed. Just 
surnames of your ancestors may only be initialed, which makes it a little bit harder to identify them. And of course, listeners, you can also, if you want it, it's very, very interesting, you can also search by occupation, can't you? Correct. You can look for all the tailors in Cork County. And so if you knew that your family moved around and they had a particular profession and you can't find them where you think they should, you could look them up under the profession. Great. And all professions really like RIC officer, uh, lighthouse keepers, any any occupation really that you can enter, you can you know you can break it down and classify them under that. If they had a very popular surname, it would just help you come closer to finding yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Dunning, Margaret, thank you so so much. So now we have we have my family's names. We've gone back a generation. We know now the parishes that they live lived in. So we can go back. The next step would be from this, the next step would be civil or church records and to bring us into the 19th century? Both really, Terry, okay, depending so. on the age of your individual that you find on the census return. Pre-1864, you would only have the church records to rely on. But if an individual was born after 1864, the parish record or the civil record would, would be a very valuable source for you. Brilliant. So next episode, Margaret, we'll go to that if you don't mind. And thank you so much again. I feel like I'm meeting my family for the first time. Thanks to you. Thank you very much. No indeed. Problem at all. Thank you.